Good morning, church. My name is Dennis, and I have the the privilege and honor of being one of the under-shepherds here at uh, Grace Covenant Church. And um, I also have the privilege of bringing you the word this morning, something that um, I'm thankful to the Lord to have the opportunity to do. And in keeping with the tradition, the first Lord's Day of the month, we're going to be diverting off intentionally into the book of Psalms. One passage that's probably well known to us goes like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and did not give thanks to him, but became foolish in their hearts. Their hearts became dark and futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And these are the words by the Apostle Paul, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his letter to the Romans. And there is nothing new under the sun. If we learn anything today, there is nothing new under the sun. Just as in the days of Paul, for those of us today, and as we look at this psalm, there is nothing new under the sun. Even though the evidence is plain, even though God's works are displayed everywhere, there are those who deny his existence today. And they're in our families. Perhaps they are some high school acquaintances that we still keep in contact with. Perhaps they're at our workplaces, and we hear from them often. They're in our schools, our colleges, our public schools, and I know for a fact that they are even in our private Christian schools. So we are going to open up our Bibles this morning to the 53rd Psalm. This text may sound familiar to you. Uh, Pastor Andrew, who left us uh, a couple of weeks ago for California, he preached out of Psalm 14. And Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are very much alike, save for a few differences. Why would the Lord include two virtually identical chapters in the book of Psalms? It's a great question, and I don't have an answer for you. But whenever scripture repeats itself, I think it's by no coincidences because there are no coincidences. We should pay attention and glean to what the Lord is showing us and telling us. If you're in a pew Bible, we're going to be on page 444. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's probably because you don't have a Bible of your own. So if you would, please take that home as a gift today. Live in it. Live in its pages and read it often. Psalm 53. 
to the choir master according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you once again this morning. Lord, help us to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, reorient our thoughts and our minds this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to behold your glory and your beautiful truths that are in Scripture. Father, it would take years to plumb the depths of this even one psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning. Lord, anything that I do would be a disservice to your word in a sense, Father, but I pray that you would help me effectively communicate what truths I see out of this psalm to your people this morning. Lord, I pray that this would be a reality this morning, that our people, as, um, as your word says, that we the, the word of God is useful to equip the man for every good work, to rebuke, to admonish for training in righteousness. Father, let this be a reality this morning. Work in me and work in the hearts of your people. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we know that the Psalms include laments. We know that the Psalms include imprecatory Psalms or praying down curses, literally. We know that the Psalms have many sermons, long sermons, thinking about Psalm 119. That's a really long sermon. That might take many months for us to even preach through Psalm 119. But taking a look at this Psalm, Psalm 53, looking at the title, there is a word that may not be very familiar to you, Mahalath. It wasn't very familiar to me as well. In fact, it only happens in Psalm 53 and in Psalm 88. And I found it interesting that this word is really not completely known. Men way smarter than me, heads or tails, can't figure out truly what Mahalath really means. Some commentators believe it has to do with the particular instrument that was used as they would sing this psalm. This would be the music that they played along with it or to it. Some would see Mahalath as a reference to an infirmity or a disease. John Gill, a lesser known 18th century Baptist pastor and theologian, 
thought that this psalm had to deal with infirmity or disease. We know that Maskell, from Andrew, he told us that Maskell has to deal with instruction. So John Gill said this is instruction about the disease of sin. So I love that. That's kind of where we're going with that. That's the, one of the themes, I guess you could say. By the inspiration of the Spirit, we have David in the first verse talking about the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We have an indictment, if you will, about the fool. This is David's perspective, but there is the impression that this is also God's perspective. Considering all that scripture is God-breathed, all of scripture is God-breathed, as we said a little bit ago, we can confidently say then that if every page, every word, every letter is God-breathed, this could be God's perspective. And fool is not really a word that's used that often today, is it, in today's culture? We don't hear of brothers and sisters calling each other the fool. There might be another word they use in place of that, but certainly not fool. Jesus used the word fool. In Luke 12, 20, we can read the story of the rich fool. The rich man said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Whose will they be? So we have a rich man who was a fool because he did not prepare to meet God. So in our day, if you look at television, the fool might represent someone who is silly. It might represent someone who is incompetent. But this is not what David means whenever he is talking about the fool. The fool here According to the text, let's take it a little bit further, is someone who represents someone that makes the statement that there is no God. Why is it foolish for someone to say there is no God? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in the first passage that I read, which was out of Romans 1, 18 through 21. The reason people are foolish for not believing in God is because this passage says, for what is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how did God show this, this evidence to people that points to their foolishness for not believing? Again, I'm going to appeal to David for that answer as well. In Psalm 19, he mentions the heavens, he mentions the skies. What do they proclaim? The glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. So, why is it foolish for someone to say there is no God? Because God, in creation, the heavens and the skies, the trees, the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, 
the child in the womb, the child outside of the womb, it's screaming, this did not happen by accident. There is a creator. Give him glory that he is due. Therefore, the fools that deny God's existence, they are without excuse. They can't say on the day of the Lord whenever they are standing before the Lord Jesus, whenever he returns and judgment is rendered, they cannot say, I didn't know. You know, God, I'm a pretty smart guy. If you had only given me enough evidence, I would have believed. If you had only provided enough proof for me, then I would have acknowledged you. I would have given you glory. I would have praised you. I would have believed in your son. So the fool arrives at the conclusion that God does not exist while the fool knows that God exists. The Hebrew language is rather difficult. Perhaps there are some here who could help me out with that. But I lean on the shoulders of other people, well-known, vetted people, Reformed Baptist people. And I've learned that in my study that Psalm 53, 1, to make the verse flow better, that the words, there is, it was added. So, Looking at the text, this would actually say, the psalm actually says, the fool says in his heart, no God. Their refusal then is deliberate. It's intentional. And what David is saying here is that the fool says in the depths of his soul, no God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I know that you exist, God, but I reject you. I will have nothing to do with you. Even if you do exist, there is no way you care about what I do. I'm a small fish. The fool doesn't try to disprove God, but he merely lives his life if God functionally does not exist. I think it's important to really distinguish where the fool says, no God. Where does he say it? Does he say it in his brain? Does he say it out of his mouth? Well, absolutely. He thinks that there is no God. Out of his lips, he says there is no God. But it's important to look here from the text that David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And whenever the Old Testament mentions the heart, it could be a reference to a couple of things. It could be a reference to something that's physiological, like the actual organ of the heart. But it could also mean the psychological sense, where it's the center of a man's, the focus of a man's personal life, the source of his motives, the center of his thought processes. And this may sound a little repetitive, but I believe it was Pastor Joel last week who kind of spoke about, about this, quoting John Frame, about what, is, what does the heart really mean? So hopefully you're seeing some connectivity and some agreeing, some unity there. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So this is the correct meaning then. The psychological, the fool says in his heart, in his mind, in his will, in his emotions, his entire inner being, no God. 
It doesn't happen intellectually. It happens in his heart. So question, if all of creation testifies to the glory of God and majesty as creator of all things, then what's the problem? If God's word says that the fool knows that God exists and yet does not worship him or give him honor or give thanks to him, what's the stumbling block? The stumbling block must happen in his heart. Nathaniel read the words from Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is desperately sick. The heart is wicked. So the stumbling block for the fools happens in the heart. It's not intellectual. It's a heart problem. And I think really to help us understand why it's originating in the heart and why that's so much of an issue is to go back to the Hebrew and look at the word Nabal or Nabal. This is the word that David uses for heart in this text. And they might sound familiar to you, thinking about the Old Testament again, thinking even about the context of David. We have the word Nabal. And it's a word that means fool, foolishness. And it's the name of a man that David had dealings with, I believe, in 2 Samuel. Nabal was a fool. Nabal's wife, I believe it was Abigail, even admitted to David that Nabal was a fool. So we have David using the same word, Nabal, for fool in this text. But it's not a foolishness that's intellectual. It's a foolishness that's attributed to moral perversity. It's from the heart. It's from their will, their entire being. It's not that a person can't find God. The person doesn't want to find God. And it's been rightly said that the atheist can't find God for the same reason they, a thief can't find a policeman. He knows that if he admits that there is a God, he is admitting that he is ultimately responsible to God. So it's a heart issue. It's a moral issue. The fool does not want God and denies his existence because if God did exist, then they could not willfully engage in the sin that they love so much, in the sin that they are enslaved to. So fools know naturally that God exists, yet they still reject him. A reality in David's day as he wrote this psalm, again, it was a reality in Paul's day as he penned the words of Romans 1. And we are inundated today with fools everywhere. Even this so-called new atheism, which really all it is is a repackaged issue that we see from Psalm 53. Nothing is new under the sun. People don't want God because they love their sin so much. But anyone who rejects God is a fool. So we have fools who deny God's existence. And David shares a little bit further about their behavior. Let's look back to the text. This is, this is a beginning in the latter part of verse 1. And I'm going to take it to verse 3. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. 
There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become, become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David in Psalm 53 is narrowing down, giving us a clear picture of the fool, of their behavior. And we, as we move along, we're going to see how God deals with the fool. Does God take pleasure in the fool? Well, from your bulletin, you can probably see that God takes no pleasure in fools. That's the title. And we're told in verse 2 that God looks down on the children of man. There is a corruptiveness. There is, they are doing abominable iniquity. There are none who does good. And then we have this verse that God is looking down from heaven where David is really prescribing some human attributes to God. Does God look down? Sure. But there's two things that need to be mentioned here. Because the truth is that God sees everything. Does God look down? Absolutely. But God sees everything. All places, at all times, he is everywhere. And David in Psalm 139 echoes the same for this all-knowing and all-seeing God. Psalm 139 says that God knows whenever David sits up or he sits down and rises up. God knows and discerns David's thoughts from afar. God is acquainted with all of David's ways. In other words, there are no, there is no secrets that you can keep from God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He sees and knows all the secret sins that we have. He knows all the thoughts that we think, the words that we even say. Kids, the words that we mutter under our breath whenever we are responding to our parents' rebuke. Kids, and even parents alike, he knows the words that we think even before it comes out of our mouths. There is nothing hidden from God. So God looks down upon the children of man. In the children of man, it's a term that's used in Scripture. In Psalms, it's used quite often. Ecclesiastes, it's used quite often. Good context, not so good context. Ecclesiastes 9.3, I think this is a helpful verse. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. That's applicable, I think. That helps us understand these children of men or children of man. Ecclesiastes 9.12, the children of man are snared at an evil time and it suddenly falls upon them. So this reference to the children of man is something that we should recognize as this is all of society. This is humanity. This is mankind. Those in David's time, those in Paul's time, those in our time. God can see mankind, the children of men, back in David's time, Paul's time. He sees us again, always today, and will in the future. 
So according to God's perspective, these children of men, they don't understand the things of God. Looking back at the text with me, they don't see after God, and God is a witness to it. He looks down from heaven, he sees their sinfulness, he sees their hearts, and all of this is open and lies naked before the Lord. And here in the latter portion of verse 2 are passages that most likely sound familiar to you if you behold the doctrine of depravity, if you've ever studied it, if you've ever defended it. And a well-known passage that we're going to go to for this is Romans 3. And as we're reading Psalm 53, and if you remember Psalm 14 that Andrew preached out of, it's because Paul quotes David from these two passages. So you can go to Romans 3 if you want. Most of you probably already have it memorized, but I will read it for you because I think that it is so helpful to hear. Again, whenever things in Scripture are repeated, it's not by accident and no coincidence we must pay special attention so in Romans chapter 3, Paul actually leaves out the first part of the text. The fool has said in his heart. He, he just leaves that out. But he takes the latter part and the verses following that. Romans 3, 9 through 10, what then? Are the Jews, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Romans is Paul's systematic theology that he's writing. For his readers then, for us to glean from today. And he begins with how everyone, the children of man, humanity, mankind, everyone knows they may deny it, but they know that God exists. Moving on then to that everyone, all, is born in sin. In other words, friends, hear me, we are born fools. Do you see the connection there? We are born fools. All of us naturally are born, and it might be hard because maybe most of us in here were born inside the church. You may be thinking to yourself, man, there's never been a day that I've never believed. And it may feel that way, but that is not the way that it is. At some point in your life, you were raised in the church, but at some point God got a hold of you. And the parents that the Lord has given you raised you in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But at some point, he regenerated your heart. Beforehand, you were a fool. You may not have rejected him by your profession, but you rejected him functionally and practically. So, Paul is letting us know that everyone is born a fool. And it's in this universal indictment of man that Paul is telling us that none of us are righteous. None of us understand the things of God naturally. None of us look for God. And none of us can do good. Now, Paul, again, knows that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why he wrote that in 2 Timothy. Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 
they agree, he is agreeing with David again that people are totally depraved. Setting up then that children of man, even though they are inherently wicked, they are born fools, they are still accountable to God. And because they are accountable to God, one day they must get right with God because they have sinned. Again, Romans 5.12 says this just to kind of help provide some meat to the sermon. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through one sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Genesis 5.6, of course, I hope you're seeing how Scripture agrees with Scripture here. There are no contradictions. Genesis 6.5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. Jeremiah 17:9, as I said a little bit ago, our hearts are desperately wicked. They are sick. So we have fools who deny God's existence, not intellectually, but because of their hearts, because of their moral perversity and depravity. They are corrupt, they love sin, they suppress the truth. Why? Because they love their sin. They reject that God exists, they don't want God to exist, they do abominable things as if, as if God does not exist. They do not seek God, they cannot do good, not even one. And I want to pause here because I am in no way saying that the children of God are somehow, and hopefully you're not sensing that or feeling that or hearing that from me, that the children of God are somehow amongst the spiritual elite. We aren't. Again, we are born as fools. None of us were looking for God, but somehow we became born again. And save for the grace of God, Intervening, intervening in our foolish hearts, depraved people everywhere, if not for that grace, we would continue to be the children of man, enslaved to sin, unregenerate, without knowing God intimately or relationally, being eternally condemned in hell. All glory goes to the King of kings and Lord of lords for his work in our hearts. So, does this mean that good does not exist? I've heard arguments of atheists that say, well, I can still do good. Absolutely. There is a sense of common grace here where even an unregenerate mother taking care of her child, there is good in that even an unregenerate person in their relief of the poor that's still a good thing but even that glory goes to God even though they are doing it for themselves but again I think it's helpful that we look at some material from our foundations class which is our membership on ramp uh, should be coming up around the first of the year but in the section entitled the gospel this is what it says about our depravity. This doesn't mean 
then we are as bad as we could be. It means sin's corruption affects us in every part of our being, our mind, our emotions, our will, and our body. There is nothing in us that remains untouched by sin. Everything we do, even the things that we do considered good, is tainted by sin. As a result of our depravity, we're incapable of pleasing and obeying God. The good that the unregenerate do, perhaps to make them look good, does not earn any merit in their favor. It cannot please God. They are filthy rags. And it's been coined by the Puritans, not only about a moral or theoretical, intellectual kind of atheism, but a practical kind of atheism. And we can look at Psalm 53, and we can absolutely make the case for a practical or a functional atheism. Here in the Bible Belt, especially where people profess Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from them, are far from him. They probably would even have a, a Bible on their coffee table, albeit collecting dust. They might even believe the Bible to be the word of God. But again, their hearts are far from the Lord and they live as if God isn't real and his word is not true. These people are not confessionally atheist. They claim to believe in God. Who else does? The demons believe in God and they shudder. But practically, these people don't live as if there is a God. And church, I, I, it really must be mentioned that this is something that not even happens outside of the church. This happens inside the church as well. And here, here the warning here. There is, there is danger here. We must be aware of the practical, functional atheism that can even happen inside our own hearts. Even though we've been born again, the, the Lord has done an amazing work in our lives. We're in this roller coaster like sanctification. It's God and it's me and we're working together, right, to make me more like Christ where it seems like our sanctification is more God and less me and we are wandering away from the Lord in seasons. Like this permeates even the church. Stephen Sharnock is a, a well-known Puritan author and pastor. He is especially helpful explaining what practical atheism looks like in the church, in the lives of Christians. In Existence and Attributes of God, one of his works, he notes that all sin is the result of at least temporary practical atheism. Meaning, every time that we sin, we are acting as if God does not exist. It's acknowledging God with one's confession of faith, acknowledging God with one's verbal affirmation, but denying him in our actions. So whenever we sin, brothers and sisters, we are practically living as atheists. And again, we need 
to be aware because it's not like we're living our lives in a God-absent way. But there's another way that atheism practically in the life of a Christian emanates whenever we aren't necessarily wandering off paths of righteousness. We are prone to wonder as people. But there is a sense that we live practically as atheists whenever we are going through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is whenever we remember God, not in the way that he truly is, but in the way where he is small. He is distant. He's disconnected. He's uncaring. And he's unwise. This week, how many thoughts... The words that you spoke, the decisions that you made where God was omitted from that process entirely. In church, I am vulnerable just like you are. We must keep watch over ourselves. Paul Tripp says these words. In ways we don't realize, we experience trouble not only because of the stress of life in a broken world, but also because of how we interpret the character, the size, and the strength of a God who is ruling that brokenness. Sin is blinding. Whenever you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, in a sense, you are just as vulnerable as if you had intentionally or unintentionally wandered away from the Lord where this circumstance that you're going through, Satan could even work inside of that and blind you to where you cannot see the beauty and the majesty of God that somehow what is happening to you has happened by accident and not by his divine sovereignty. As Ted said just a moment ago, everything that happens to us, I believe Piper said it, passes through God's loving hands first so wicked fools exist what is their behavior we looked at that just a little bit what else do they do looking back at the text verse 4 have those who work evil no knowledge who eat up my people as they do bread and do not call upon God so according to the text in David's day the fools who rejected God, who committed this abominable behavior, they worked this evil. They did not call upon God. In other words, they are prayerless. And they ate up David's people like bread. In other words, David's people at this moment were being persecuted. And looking at Psalm 52 through, I believe, right around 64, we can look at those Psalms and and, and, and really see how Saul is like one of the main perpetrators in that. It could be a reference to Paul as far as this, uh, as far as David's enemies go in this passage. Uh, we're not exactly sure because we're not told. But we know that David was being persecuted at this time by enemies of his and enemies of God at the same time. And we know that people, God's people, continue to be persecuted today. Granted, in America, it happens vastly different. 
It's almost a joke compared how persecution happens elsewhere in the world. And I'm not saying what you're going through, if you're being persecuted by a wicked fool, that that's somehow funny. It's not funny. But compared to, here's some statistics. 2022, 5,600 Christians died for their faith. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. That's not happening here. Understand that contrast there. But persecution is something that's not foreign to the people of God. We see it in Scripture. We see it with Jesus. We see it with the apostles. We learn about it through church history. We learn about the persecution and the martyrdom of God's people. Our brother Jacob Ketchins, who you had an opportunity to listen to this morning, I'm sure that he and his family are fully aware of the culture of Vietnam and any potential hostility that could happen there. And while this is a reality, Pastor Joel preached out of, I believe it's around Hebrews 10, where the author of Hebrews says, we can hold fast to our confession without wavering because it's a confession of hope. And we can do so because it's under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness. We can continue to share the gospel. Jacob and his family can continue to plant gospel seeds and share the gospel in the context of Vietnam. Why? And he can hold fast to his confession of hope. Why? God is faithful. God is faithful. So, wicked fools, they exist, they deny God, they reject God, they do abominable iniquity. We see this in the world today. They persecute God's people. We see this in the world today. And there's something else that's going on here. Because wicked fools also run because they feel that they are being pursued. They are in great terror when there is no terror. What does David mean by this? So David had a specific enemy in mind, as I said a little bit ago. Perhaps Saul and his men, we don't know for sure. But he describes that this enemy is frightened, even though there is nothing there, technically, literally, to make them frightened. So what is going on? Why would the wicked who persecute David's people flee if nothing was there? Proverbs 28.1, I think, sheds some light. We are told that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So the wicked flee, and they do so. Why? I think it's because their consciences, which are given by God, who they reject, their consciences are guilty. They flee because of their guilty conscience and they have this dread, this fear of judgment. So the wicked become fearful and they become suspicious. And this happens us, to us too, does it not? Going down the road in a different world, it may seem, all of a sudden, you're heading down the road. You're not paying any attention to anything except a black and white car that is up ahead that is over off the side. And as you get closer, you see the words police on the side. 
and you do a nose dive because your feet just tap that brake or they slam on that brake. Were you speeding? Probably not, but why did you do that? You were fearful because of your conscience. Again, as a coach, I saw this all the time as well. Whenever it would be in a game, I would be managing the game. My girls would be playing. All of a sudden, the ref would blow a whistle, which happens often in girls' basketball because they're feisty. But inevitably, one of my girls would look at me and, and do that, and the whistle wasn't even about them. Their consciences are guilty. So this passage in Psalm 53, we could go to Romans 2 because Paul talks about this in Romans 2. But the wicked have consciences given by God, more evidence of a divine creator, and their consciences can feel the guilt for the wrong that they do. And because of their guilt, they flee. So David's people were being persecuted by prayerless people Fools who rejected God. And these wicked fools felt terror when there was no terror. What does God do? Does God just allow this to happen? Does God even notice, talking about practical atheism in the church, does God even notice things like this? Absolutely. We're told in Ecclesiastes 5.4 that God does not take pleasure and any fools. And we're told in verse 5 that God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. So scattering bones, that's very graphic. It is. These are intentional. These are words of judgment. It, it should be like lights flashing to the reader and to the hearer this is what God is doing to those who are enemies of David, subsequently enemies of him. God comes to the rescue. God scatters their bones. God, in his justice, in his providential care for his people, orchestrates that these wicked fools, these enemies of David, would lose in whatever battle was happening at the time. David and his army, because again, God's care and providence, David's army had victory over those who encamped against him. And these wicked fools who reject God, they are put to shame. And something else that I want us to take a look here. There's a contrast of two different kinds of people, is there not? There's the context of having a, a wicked fool, but also the mentioning of other people, of God's people, of David and his people. And it doesn't mention in this text that there is like a gray area, right? It's like God's people, the enemy, wicked fools. There's, there's no neutrality here in Psalm 53 about the children of men God's people. The wicked fools, God's people. And there's no neutrality today, friends. You and I are one of only two people. We are either an enemy of God or we are a part of God's family. 
We are either God's people or, or, I'm sorry, we are against God's people or we are one of God's friends. And Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon entitled, Man Naturally God's Enemies. And in this sermon, he espouses that regular children of men, humanity, mankind, they're willing to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've, I've done some wrong things. I'm not as bad as so-and-so, but I've done some wrong things. But what they fail to realize and what they don't want to admit is that they're enemies of God. They want to admit that they're not enemies of God because they have not done God any harm. And again, Scripture, the whole breadth of Scripture, God's people or God's foe, enemies of God, natural fallen men are enemies of God. We see this in Romans 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 You were alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Romans 8.7 The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We are either enemies or a part of the family of God. There's no neutrality. There's no gray area. There's no in-between. Lastly, in verse 6, and in closing, we see David say these words, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. In some translations, this verse 6 is in the form of a question, essentially saying the same things, but it's in the form of a question. And I like to see verse 6 as a prayer. It's a petition to God. It's a prayer of deliverance. And at this point, David, battling with the enemy, perhaps had uh, victory over this enemy with God scattering their bones. I think it's important to look at David saying these words and praying this prayer with David's emphasis on prayer that he has, even in the midst of difficulty. I think it's a wonderful example for us. But this prayer of deliverance is also a prayer of expectation because it's made on the basis of God's steadfast love, God's historic deeds and acts of faithfulness. So David remembers God's faithfulness, his wondrous deeds, and he prays in expectation, knowing that God will restore everything that has been done wrong. He will reward every wrong that has been endured. He will right every, every wrong. And he is looking to this, knowing that God will deliver. And just as God delivered David and his people from the crushing enemy, we are told that the battle against our enemy has also been won. The bones of our enemy have already been scattered. His teeth have already been smashed in, to quote another psalm. 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David knew that God would reward every wrong endured. And David was looking to a day whenever we also anticipate, or we should, when the Lord's righteous rule is recognized by all of creation, all of his enemies are a footstool under his feet. And while it appears, even in this psalm and in life right now, that wicked fools, they're gaining ground, they're having success, we are often lamenting because of the affliction that we're going through. And while it appears that nothing is going to be done about these enemies, these wicked fools of, of God, that's not the case. We know, because Scripture tells us, that perfect justice and just punishment will be poured out on God's enemies for eternity. God, in closing, <clears throat> I would like you guys to take an assessment this morning. There's three different questions. Are you a fool who has rejected the one true living God? <clears throat> Do you profess to know Lord to know the Lord, but in your heart, you are always from him. You should know that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You should know that there is salvation in no other name but his. As we sung just a little bit ago, you should know that your sins are many, as are mine, but his mercy is more. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. If you are in this category, in this assessment, turn and repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ. Do not reject the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, just as the Lord rejected these, or just as these enemies rejected God, so too God will reject you one day for eternity. The second question of this assessment, are you living as a functional atheist? Denying the Lord by making him too small? Measuring his love and his nearness based upon your circumstances? There is a need. You must repent of this sin as well. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, I think is helpful. That if this is you, that you would turn from that sin of living practically as an atheist, as a Christian. That you would pray to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. <clears throat> that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Are you in the midst of persecution? 
Last question. Are you a sufferer for the name of Christ? I would ask you to remember the words of the Apostle Peter. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let us pray. Father, we once again approach your throne. Lord, we do so not on our own basis. Lord, we do so not in our own righteousness, but we do so on the basis of your son's righteousness. Lord, knowing that you hear the prayers of not the wicked, but you hear the prayers of the redeemed. Father, and we are redeemed by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. And Lord, this is how we, that we can stand before you no longer facing condemnation, laying petitions down at your feet. Father, we know that hearing the word of Christ is what saves people. Father, I pray that you would give us a boldness to proclaim the word of Christ. Father, I pray that you always would help us give a defense for the hope that is within us. Lord, I pray that you help us not live practically like atheists, Father, thinking that you are somehow distant or too small. Father, we clearly in that moment, we need your help to fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ instead of on the circumstances. Father, we can't do this, any of this in our own strength, Father. We need you. And praise be to God that you have given us your spirit which dwells in us to lead us, to guide us, to minister to us, to comfort us. Father, we thank you so much for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you so much for not rejecting us as you will reject these wicked fools. We love you. We thank you so much for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.